all these generals are dying. And I'm like, are they dying in their apartments or are they dying on the fields of Ukraine? And it turns out it's a little bit of both. Not only did they badly miscalculate, you have to understand how Russia works. Welcome to an all new episode of the McFuture podcast. Predictions and prescriptions for a world drowning in hot, steaming Russian gas, but starved for meaning. I'm Steve Factor, and today we are going deep. I did this episode on Ukraine and Russia and Putin and all this stuff, and some companies reached out to me, and they're like, hey, we're doing scenario planning. Can you help us figure out how this is going to play out so they can do long-term planning, which is what I do. People are like, oh, do you just sit there like Dionne Warwick and, you know, take phone calls from the Psychic Friends Network? No, the, the whole idea is so you can make investments. Why would you invest in a project that isn't going to pay off until three, five, ten years from now if you have no point of view on what the world is going to look like? Anyway, what's crazy about this is... As I dug deeper and deeper into building these scenarios, my mind has been blown. And my mind's been blown many times over the last five years. But now I'm waking up dreaming of Zelensky. I'm waking up wearing green t-shirts everywhere. I am trans Zelensky. (laughs) I'm slowly transitioning into the leader of the Ukraine. And honestly... What we're about to talk about is not healthy for us to know. Once we know how things actually are and how the world actually works, there's no going back from that. It's like losing your virginity. You know, I know they have surgeries where they could put your cherry back. Whatever that is, is not a real cherry. The only thing I ask you is to keep an open mind because we're going to go to some very interesting places and some very dark places. (laughs) And hopefully we all walk out wearing Zelensky t-shirts. There is this top level that I think we can all agree on, which is Putin is to blame and should be held accountable for his actions. But there is so much depth beneath this surface that we have to understand that the blame is not solely his. Let's start with the first section. What is the U.S. strategy? What are we trying to accomplish? The least helpful way to look at it would be through a party lens, left, right. Those are all distractions. It's counterproductive. The most helpful lens to look at things is power, money, and influence. Everything else is nonsense. What's the first thing the U.S. wants? We want to preserve our economic dominance. We have the biggest economy in the world, and there's only one thing keeping us there. That is the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. That is the glue that allows us to have all of these deficits, to print a bunch of money, to buy military equipment, to run huge trade deficits and um, annual budget deficits and have this huge debt. You wouldn't want to see an America that couldn't print its own money. It keeps us from living in reality. That's not what reality looks like. You have to earn your money. We're borrowing our money and we're creating a bunch of paper. And that paper is keeping the U.S. afloat. And we need to make sure that continues because without it, we can't maintain the global order that we have. And I'll get into that in a second. Domestically, that also means limiting inflation. We're not doing a great job there either. 
And the other part of economic stability is securing resources. The number one resource being energy. We have fought wars over oil. I know they'll tell you that, <laughs> oh, that wasn't for oil. It is oil because there are plenty of African countries that have all kinds of genocides and things going on that we don't care about because there are no resources to protect. We protect resources, energy being the number one resource. And that's why we're talking about renewables because renewables, in theory at least, are a way to protect us. But I'm going to get into why that may not be the case coming up. But part of all of this is maintaining a certain global order. And I don't mean this in a conspiratorial way, like Alex Jones, the globalists are going after us. They're plotting and scheming and they're turning into frogs. That's the guy that lives in some people's heads 24-7. But the global order... Um, is not exactly what it seems. One of our biggest global interactions is on trade policy. And Trump certainly made that a priority of his. And Biden hasn't changed any of the, the tariffs or any of the stuff that, that Trump put into place. And look, there are countries like China that don't allow our companies in, but dump tons of product. And when I say dump, you know, they subsidize it, but also we want it. So we, we want it to be cheap. There are other countries that also have uh, industries that they protect or subsidize. And we haven't been doing a good job of pushing back in cases where we're not doing well. Trump tried to do that. I don't know how effectively he did it, but we don't have a great trade policy. A lot of it is reactive to what different corporations want. Uh, the closest thing to a strategy that we've put together recently would be the uh, TPP, which at first, Hillary Clinton was one of the major authors, and Obama was a big supporter of TPP, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was supposed to be a sphere of influence and trade with Asian countries so they don't fall into China's sphere of influence and forced to be trading with them. A lot of people had problems with it. It was demonized in media. Honestly, I haven't done all the detailed homework to have a really strong opinion on it. But when Trump came out strong against it and popular sentiment turned against it, then it was dumped and Hillary Clinton stopped supporting it. So it sort of went away. But the need for effective trade policy has not gone away. And we've, you know, signed a bunch of uh, trade deals like NAFTA, for example. They were probably a couple of hundred major deals that were signed under Clinton when all of this was deregulated. And we were like, let's open our borders because that's what co companies wanted. That lowers prices. Right now, you could have Indian call center workers. Now you could have cars assembled in Mexico and not pay any tariffs. The problem with that was we lost a bunch of jobs. So there's a bunch of people in their 40s and 50s living in old factory towns who will never, ever work again, ever. We opened the borders and let out all these great jobs before we had anything decent to replace them with. So that's why all of this anger exists in our country. So you could make the argument that Clinton helped create Trump. And not only that, you know, they've partied together. You know, they've, you know, they hung out with Epstein. Trump financed Hillary's campaign because, hey, got to do business. It's New York. You got to build those hotels. And the only way to do it is grease up the politicians. The other part of preserving the global order is preserving stability and certainty, not just for citizens, but for corporations. The markets want nothing more than certainty. But don't let me explain it. 
Listen to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink explain it. And you know BlackRock is the biggest financial services company. So here he is. Markets don't like uncertainty. Markets like actually totalitarian governments where you have a uh, understanding of what's out there and obviously we're uh, the whole dimension is changing now with uh, as you said a democratization of uh, of countries and and democracies are very messy as we know in the United States uh, you have opinions changing back and forth the markets are not looking for democracy authoritarian governments provide way more stability because you deal with one person and everything trickles down. They send the order and everyone falls in line. Democracies are chaotic. They're ugly. They're messy. You vote a new person in, like Trump was voted in, and he nullified all these trade deals. He nullified the agreement with Iran. So you have way less predictability. That's not what the markets want. They want control. That is what they crave. It's what plants crave. The other part of maintaining order is military, of course. That's why we have bases all over the world, in Korea, in the Middle East, in Germany. We need to back up all of this economic might. Is it an empire? I don't know. Everyone has a different definition. But the reality is we have installed and uninstalled Saddam Hussein, Noriega, uh, Osama bin Laden more times than I installed and uninstalled Windows 95 when I was a kid. So this is a thing we do. We do regime change. We do military interventions. We secure our interests. That is America's business. And when our partners don't comply, we remove them. And remember that Russia, still by the old guard that's festering inside of these organizations, they are viewed as the enemy. And Putin is a bad guy. He's an autocrat, but he's also an autocrat that sits on a lot of power regionally uh, in terms of oil. And that makes him a particular threat in a way that other tyrants in other countries wouldn't be. One way to deal with an enemy is to deplete them. So as of now, 70 to 75% of Russia's military is wrapped up in the Ukraine. And they just called up, I think, something like 150,000 new conscripts, which is uh, a draft basically in Russia. So all these young people are going into the army and who knows. This is a quagmire and this is very much part of our strategy. Now, how do we know that? There's an article in uh, the New York Times by David Sanger. He said the Biden administration seeks to help Ukraine lock Russia in a quagmire without inciting a broader conflict with a nuclear armed adversary or cutting off potential paths to de-escalation. CIA officers are helping to ensure that crates of weapons are delivered into the hands of vetted Ukrainian military units. This is what we're doing. We're funneling arms into Ukraine for a proxy war with Russia to deplete them. And you're like, well, Steve, I still don't believe that. I don't follow the New York Times. Okay, let's keep going. How about Biden actually saying it? Would you believe that? So he was improvising, which, by the way, when you're 78 or 79 years old, improv is out. No more improv. Don't sign up for Upright Citizens Brigade. Your improv skills aren't there anymore. So he said... A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire 
will never erase a people's love for liberty. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. That has been the administration's angle, even if unspoken. In fact, one of the uh, British spokespeople said, quote, the UK's number one option is for the conflict to be extended and thereby bleed Putin. So this is the strategy, whether we like it or not. And I hope we don't like it because a lot of people are dying and they're dying unnecessarily. We like to talk about what are the off ramps for Putin? You know, how does he get out of this in a way that doesn't kill more people or launch nukes and save face, but pulling out of Ukraine? We don't talk about our off-ramps. So our off-ramps happened before the conflict. So, you know, we've had decades of people talking about NATO and the risks of NATO. I don't have a strong position on that because I think you can view it from multiple directions. But NATO certainly was known to be uh, an issue with him. Blinken met with Zelensky before uh, the invasion, and they knew that NATO was not happening for Ukraine. Why wasn't that announced? That announcement alone could have diffused this whole situation. In fact, this whole dance that we did for almost a decade uh, since 2014 with are they getting in? Aren't they getting in? It's like the X-Files where they had the relationship between uh, Mulder and Scully. Uh, and they were like, well, are they going to hook up? Aren't they going to hook up? And like the show lasts a decade. That's fiction. This is reality. So if we weren't going to let, let them in, announce it, and probably all these lives wouldn't have been destroyed, both on the Russian and the Ukrainian side, because the Russians, these guys don't want to be there either. It's very obvious to say Putin is the evil guy who pulled the trigger. Absolutely. He is accountable for killing all of these people, uh, both Ukrainians and his own soldiers who don't want to be there. Uh, but it's much more difficult to look at ourselves and say, hey, we may have instigated a fight that will kill lots of other people. And that's something that we have yet to internalize. And I hope that we do. And this gets me thinking about a deeper question. And, and this is one that's a little bit uncomfortable. Obama was on stage, I think it was somewhere around 2018. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff. I, you should get over that quickly. The world, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who you are fighting may love their kids. He's like, look, life is messy. Not everything is that pure or that simple. But where is the line between messy and corrupt? At some point, America had this aspirational image, but... The more we find out about these things, the more we peek behind the curtain, the harder it is to claim the high ground. What if all of these ugly things that we do, what if that's necessary for us to maintain our lifestyle, our democracy, our freedoms? It's very weird to think of the possibility that we can only survive off the blood of sacrificial lambs. And in this case, Ukraine is very much a sacrificial lamb. So I leave you with this question. Is democracy still democracy if it's by any means necessary? Let's talk about scenarios and what happens next. 
I want to start in an unlikely place, which is bad assumptions. There were so many bad assumptions going into it. But the first and foremost is Vladimir Putin's operating thesis, which is that he can rebuild. And I don't think he's rebuilding the Soviet Russia. I think he's trying to rebuild Tsarist Russia. That greatness can never exist in his kind of regime because greatness cannot happen top down. People do not innovate in fear. People innovate when they're free and they have liberty. Under Russia, there is no liberty. Everyone becomes a bottom feeder when everything is controlled top down, when you hand out government enterprises to your buddies. And you could see it because when was the last time you bought a Russian product? There's nothing to buy. And you can never be great if you have no rule of law. People have to believe if they have property, the government is going to protect it. If they build a company, they have to believe that the state isn't going to confiscate it, which has been done multiple times. The state has confiscated multiple newspapers. It confiscated the Facebook clone Vkontakte, VK for short. You might have seen it somewhere. But that's owned by the state because the guy who invented it, Pavel, what's his full name? Pavel something. He went on to found Telegram. So you need to go to another place to build your company because at any moment, and I've known people who've had businesses in Russia, and if that business gets too big and too profitable, it attracts the attention of all these gangsters in the government and they come in for their peace. You can maybe appease them and give them a taste or you end up having to give up everything you've worked for. But that is a scarcity mentality. You can create abundance just by harnessing the brain power of all these smart people. Russia is filled with all of these scientists and engineers and, and mathematicians, brilliant people, and they're building nothing. They're building maybe something for the government or they're teaching in universities, but they're certainly not building great enterprises or uh, coming up with great achievements. Why bother? Even if they did, they couldn't keep it. So culturally, this has been embedded into the society and they're broken. That's why all of these hackers come out of Russia. The same people who hear would be building startups there are trying to break into banks or break into some crypto platform or, or do ransomware. Because what's the point if you have a country that doesn't believe in its people or empower them? The other big miscalculation by Putin is how swift and harsh all of the economic sanctions would be. All the banks froze all of these accounts. They confiscated all the assets of these oligarchs, which are essentially wallets for Putin. All that money at the end of the day is Putin's. How quickly Russia was cut off from uh, processing credit cards, all these companies that pulled out operations. Personally, I would have left McDonald's there because it's actually a biological weapon and it is creating huge shortages in the country. And a lot of people lost their jobs. Now, initially, the ruble plummeted against the dollar and other currencies, but now it's almost back to where it was before because it turns out everyone's hooked on their gas and oil, so no one could actually stop buying it. Putin, he's still getting all that sweet oil revenue. It just that he can't 
could buy an iPad with them. The other thing they're doing is they're confiscating all of these Western companies' assets. They're stealing the IP for McDonald's. So they created their own McDonald's. It's called McPutin's. Actually, I don't know if it's called McPutin's, but it might as well be. They took the arches and they turned it sideways to make a B or something. At the end of the day, what it's done is it's forced them into the hands of China. So now China Union Pay is processing their credit card or debit card transactions, which is not great. They have their own uh, system that they built called Mir, but it's not very good and doesn't do well with international payments. But the last thing Russia wants to be is dependent on China. China loves all this stuff, by the way. Now they have a much weaker neighbor next to them that also can supply them gas and really needs to. They're the quiet beneficiaries of this whole thing. The other thing is the brain drain. According to this uh, article, 50 to 70,000 tech workers have already left. And remember, the people who can leave Russia are the people with the means to leave Russia. These are people who are earning good salaries. And they're saying that it could be 100,000 or more. And once these people leave, I doubt they're coming back. And that's going to take a long-term toll on the country. And probably the biggest miscalculation is military. No one counted on Zelensky to put up the kind of fight that he did. He played piano with his balls and played president on television. So no one expected him to stay. Even Biden's like, hey, uh, Zelensky, we'll pull you out of there. And Zelensky's like, no, Ukrainians don't pull out. Ukrainians pull in. Ukrainians pull around. Sometimes Ukrainians pull over and pay off cop. But Ukrainian never, ever pull out. I don't think Ukraine would have put up this kind of fight without his leadership. I mean, it's it's been pretty incredible to see. Even my wife was like, all these generals are dying. And I'm like, are they dying in their apartments or are they dying on the fields of Ukraine? And it turns out it's a little bit of both. Not only did they badly miscalculate, you have to understand how Russia works. No one is walking in with a resume saying, hey, look at all my achievements. I worked for Pepsi. I worked for IBM. I worked for Microsoft. No, the way people get jobs is some guy got another guy a really good deal on salami. And that guy gets a job or his brother-in-law gets a job. So this entire war is being run by guys who got somebody a good deal on salami. Putin picks people based on who he trusts, who's not going to steal from him, who's not going to stab him in the back, literally stab him in the back. So he's not picking the best of the best. He's picking guys that he knows aren't going to give him the shaft. Well, guess what? Sometimes the people who are the best also have ambitions to power. Those are not the people Putin wants around him. He gets the B team. Same way that uh, David Letterman, instead of having a young, virile John Stewart following his show, he found the oldest man available, uh, this guy Tom Snyder. He was the Joe Biden of late night television. He should have been eating jello somewhere. So he's picking people who are incompetent, likely because they don't have ambitions to power. And guess what those guys do? They lie. These salami guys are liars. They're like, don't worry, Ukraine. What is Ukraine? We take it over 45 minutes, maybe, maybe hour and 15. We take it over. They give us everything. They give us, they give us Zelensky on silver platter. They, we bomb. We don't need to bomb. They pay for the bombs. We attack Ukraine. Ukraine pay for it. They're all drunk off their asses. 
Yeah, no problem, no problem, Ukraine. We send one tank. We send half a tank and one soldier with no arms. We don't need missile. We don't need anything. And then we drive same tank, same tank. He drive to Poland, take over Poland. When he done with that, and he's not too tired, he's only got one leg too, I forgot to say, he's got one leg, no arm. He drive to Belarus, Belarus we already have, Me, let's not drive to Belarus, I, I got you. We go to Georgia, Georgia has delicious food, we take it all over, puts it all inside the tank, we get delicious uh, hachapuri. Everything all together, maybe round trip, I did the math, eh, about hour 49 minutes and everything finished. We don't even have to open missile cabinet. We kill all their soldiers, one tank, no problem, tomorrow. Nobody fight Russia, nobody, Russia's the best. And Putin's like, I am so glad they picked the best military operating officer. Uh, and, and the guy's already asleep. <laughs> I mean, really, the Russian military is getting exposed. They didn't even rotate the tires on their trucks. Everything is breaking down. Their tanks are trash. These things are just completely getting destroyed by these Javelin missiles. The planning was atrocious. There's only a couple of roads that they can go on to a lot of these cities. If you destroy the first vehicle and the last vehicle, these guys are stuck and they can't go off road because everything will get stuck in the mud. So now they're just sitting ducks and they're losing tens of thousands of people. I think I think the last number I saw, like 20,000 soldiers. I don't know if you could trust the, uh, the numbers, maybe 30,000 total casualties. And now they're calling up reserves. It's not going well. And Putin's trying to cover up. He's doing this dystopian mega rally. It, it looked like something out of... Uh, sci-fi movie like a, the, the bad guy would do. Putin is in the middle of a PR disaster. If you kill enough civilians, there's no road back to the world. You're not going to be hanging out with all of these celebrities anymore. You're not going to be hosting great parties on your yacht. And if you kill enough of your own soldiers, there's no road back to your own country. Everyone's going to know somebody who got killed in this war or maimed. At some point, Putin will be in danger in his own country. So he can't afford to keep doing this. And after bombing all of these civilians, you can maybe take Ukraine, but you're definitely not going to be able to hold it. It sounds like a bad Seinfeld routine. So you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. You know how to take the Ukraine, but you don't know how to keep the Ukraine. There's no way to hold a country of 40 plus million people who hate your guts and want to kill your soldiers and now are armed to the, to the teeth because of all the NATO weapons that have been shipped in. So what are the scenarios? The main divide between these scenarios is whether or not NATO directly fights Russia or it keeps doing the indirect shipping of weapons and indirect support that we've been doing. So I think there's a 20% chance that NATO gets involved directly. And it's not that inconceivable because uh, Russia was recently bombing, I think it was 10 miles from the Polish border. Poland is in NATO. If one of those missiles accidentally lands in Poland, that's it. NATO is, is engaged in, in war. So World War III is not that far off. 
But I still think Putin knows that risk. And given how poorly his military has performed so far, I don't think he's going to tempt fate and do that. But if it does happen, even if it's accidental, that 20% breaks down to 15% conventional war and 5% nuclear. I'm just doing this in increments of five. I don't want to pretend like this is more accurate than it is. But let's just say nuclear is a very low probability, but not impossible. Now, if nuclear happens, listen, all bets are off. Russia has hypersonic missiles that we can't answer and will launch tons of missiles. So at that point, kiss your kids and hope for the best. The conventional war option could branch in a couple of ways. One is Putin loses and is ousted very quickly. And then no nukes are launched and we have a new regime or who knows, a new election, uh, probably somebody we approve. And there is a 5% chance out of the total here that Putin will not win, but China enters the war. Now, I think it's very much a long shot. I don't think Putin wins in a conventional war against NATO. There's no way. He's barely winning against Ukraine armed with NATO weapons. The only way that he might is if China enters the war. Right now, I don't see China doing that because they're kind of playing both sides. And I think it's in their interest to have a weak neighbor next door instead of a strong one. So I give that 5%, but it's probably a lot lower than that. But again, I'm doing this increments of five. If there's any chance of Russia winning, likely with the help of China, you're talking about opening the gates of hell to what I call the axis of assholes, which I'm probably going to have to bleep. These are countries, rogue nations, that will act without impunity if they were to win. You will not like a world that is dominated by China, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela or some combination of these rogue states that have no interest in human rights or democracy. Let's hope none of this happens because it would be a very, very dark place very quickly. And even Putin doesn't want things to go there because even if he gets China's support, China is so much stronger and bigger than Russia that he doesn't want to be beholden to them either. Even though now with sanctions, they have to rely on China's financial networks and probably supply lines and all kinds of things from China. His own tank manufacturer had to stop the production lines because they can't get the materials they need. So that's another reason these guys probably need to bring this thing to a close because they can't even build the ammo they need to keep fighting. And we always have to remember that all wars that involve at least one nuclear power are a lie. It's a false sense of security that, that you have that they won't launch nukes. So it's a sense of decorum or politeness or fear of retribution that's keeping them from going all out. So they're always holding back. And Putin kind of showed what he's holding in reserve when he launched one of his hypersonic missiles, which travels, I forgot what the speed was, but something like 1.6 kilometers per second. It's insanely fast. That thing can hit anything on this planet within a couple of hours. If he wanted to level every human being inside of Ukraine, he could. He's trying to take it over or maybe control it. But if he ever feels like he can't, 
he could very easily lean into his war crimes and just completely obliterate all these civilians. And that would be horrific. But again, we're lying to ourselves by thinking this is all he's got. It's not. I think the likelihood of an extended occupation is no more than 20%. At some point, I think Putin would be ousted because he doesn't have the ability to hold a country that big. He just doesn't have the manpower. And also, there's so much animosity that every single citizen in Ukraine is now armed and a threat to Russian soldiers. So I give a peace resolution about a 60% chance. And it seems like what each party wants is already set out. They've been negotiating. And the prime minister of Israel has been at the center of this, uh, Naftali Bennett. So I think it's just a matter of time. Everything that's happening right now, as horrific as it is, is just a final play for pieces to negotiate with. Putin is trying to grab and control as many parts of Ukraine as he possibly can to use as bargaining chips as in negotiation. Now, his ideal situation is to put a puppet regime in Kiev and control the whole country. I don't think that's going to happen. What's going to likely happen, if I had to guess, is Donbass uh, region is going to be independent. Ukraine is going to have to sign some sort of independence from Europe and NATO agreement. Agreement, and Russia is probably going to keep Crimea. And at some point, the U.S. and European countries will have to decide how much to give in on sanctions. I'm sure they want regime change. I don't think you can get that in negotiation with Putin. The best he can hope for is a lifting of sanctions and some sort of normalization of relations, but he's not going to be vacationing in the south of Italy anytime soon. The most conspicuous thing in all of this is you haven't heard the word ceasefire from anyone in the U.S., not Biden, not Kamala Harris, no one in the administration, no one, none of these war hawks in Congress. That's why my thesis is they want this to go on. They want to bleed and weaken Putin and potentially oust him. And Zelensky's strength is really what even made this option possible. When Biden goes out and calls Putin a war criminal and says that he can't continue to lead Russia, those are not words of someone who's looking for a ceasefire or settlement. So unfortunately, I think Ukrainians are paying a bloody, awful price for a U.S. strategic goal. And the worst is Kamala in Poland. President Duda, I wanted to know if you think and if you asked the United States to specifically accept more refugees. Okay. <laughs> a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> okay, I, I okay, so this time... When I was a kid, I used to have all these Polish joke books, which I'm sure now are totally politically incorrect. I guarantee you that in Poland, they have Kamala joke books right now. This was just an embarrassment. They sent her to Jamaica. That didn't go well either. But at least they took her out of the war zone where she was only messing things up. It's really bad. We have no bench strength at all.
And the Republicans aren't making it any better. And Madison Cawthorn calling Zelensky a thug. What is wrong with these people? And Lindsey Graham, this insane maniac, is tweeting about assassinating Putin. He said someone should take this guy out. How is this productive? Well, Putin, realizing that now everyone is headhunting for him, he released a joint statement with an American celebrity, Jussie Smollett. I would like world to know I'm not depressed or suicidalistic. If something happened, it Hillary Clinton or two dreamy muscle African men from gymnasium. And that was jointly released by Vladimir Putin and Jussie Smollett. They just want us to know that if anything happens to them, it wasn't them, it was Hillary Clinton. I am not suicidal, okay? I am not suicidal. I am innocent, and I am not suicidal. Putin is just a jackass anyway. Like, there's a, you know, as I was doing research, uh, this came up in my feed. Some 22-year-old Canadian art historian wrote an article about how she became part of a strange show-and-tell with Putin. Quote, He looked me up and down in a way that was overt and slow, and the whole table kind of chuckled. His eyes would go down to my neckline as I was talking and then go up. It was very clear he was doing this. It was not subtle. What kind of game could he possibly have? This guy is just a creep who expects to get his way. What is he going to say? You are such beautiful woman. You are like Russian doll that you put in other Russian doll that you put in other Russian doll that you put in other Russian doll that you put in Putin. If you know what I mean. Ha 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 ha. What do you think? You think this guy has a sense of humor? You think he has moves? You think he has uh, some sort of suave personality? No. This is a guy who's used to getting his way and is a psychopath in every possible way. So what are the implications here? I'm going to explain on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture, exactly why all prices of all goods are going to go up as a result of what's happening in Ukraine with Russia. I also expect food shortages because there's no fertilizer being shipped and there's no planting going on for wheat in these countries. They're huge exporters of wheat. I think 15% of global wheat comes from Ukraine, especially to Africa. I also expect a lot of commodities hoarding. This already started with nickel. They had to halt trading on nickel because these traders were trying to corner the market and the price just shot through the roof. So they actually reset all the trades. I've never heard of that before. It's really insane. The biggest impact coming out of all this is insane military spending. Already, Germany has committed billions of dollars. I think it was over $100 billion. The U.S. has approved the biggest military budget in history. Same thing with Japan. So these countries are realizing that we're going to need to defend ourselves and not any other country is going to bleed for us. And unfortunately, this is going to create more incentive for war. We will have even more subversive actors in the system who push for war because it's great for sales and it's going to make the world much more dangerous. And depending on how things go, we'll either embolden China or curb some of its excesses. For example, China trying to annex Taiwan. If Putin's getting beat up and the sanctions work, 
even if it's not fully, but to some extent, that's going to be fair warning to China to say, hey, maybe we should ease up on this unless they think they have more leverage than we do. We'll see. Hopefully we won't have to. And Taiwan continues to be independent. I think we're going to see a lot more drilling, a lot more fracking, a lot more moves towards energy independence, especially nuclear. I think this will be the turning point for nuclear. Realistically, it's the best option we have available to us. And we also have to upgrade our energy grid. And partially from COVID, but now from this war, countries and companies are going to be rethinking their supply chains. There's going to be a huge movement to create backups and redundancies in supply chains because no one's going to want to depend on just one supplier. It's going to be more diversification than domestication because everyone's like, oh, we'll just do everything in the U.S. It's not practical. If we wanted to manufacture all the cars and all the cell phones in the U.S., we don't even have the rare earth minerals to do it. China has cornered the market on at least 12 of those. And they also have an ecosystem of providers, even iPhones. 40% of their parts came from South Korea. So all of this stuff would need to be shipped in from other places anyway. It would be very hard to recreate these ecosystems. And some of the strategic ones, I think maybe we make an effort. It's much more difficult than it sounds. And even if we did, all those manufacturing jobs would not be coming back because these new factories would be so much more automated that the kind of people they'll need are like software engineers and really advanced technical people, not the blue collar workers that used to work uh, on factory lines or still work on factory lines in a lot of places. The biggest thing to come out of this, of course, will be Uh, Zelensky doing the world tour with Amy Schumer, who he will be romantically involved with. Ukraine is going to be all messed up. No one there's got any money to go see him perform. He's going to retire. They're going to have a a fair and honest election. And Zelensky is going on the road with Amy Schumer. Mark my words. My biggest concern coming out of all of this is the centralization and the acquisition of more power by authorities. I already mentioned Biden's bill to sanction anyone anywhere in the world, cut them off from the financial system or from using any kind of online services. Trudeau did this recently with the trucker convoy. Anyone who even gave $25 was subject to being cut off from the financial system. That power can easily be abused. That's not a power you want government to have without due process. And it's the same thing that's happening with Assange right now. He's not getting due process. We need to be very careful about the kinds of powers that we give to the state. And in many ways, we're going to pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine. All the aid, all the debt that we take out, all these new uh, weapons that we buy. And there's going to be a huge fire sale in Russia. A lot of hedge funds and financial companies are going to make a killing there because everything there is so devalued right now. Once sanctions get lifted, there's going to be a boom in Russian commerce. And 
And realistically, it probably can't happen with Putin in office because now you've got a guy who's murdered lots and lots of people. And if you're thinking, well, what can I do about that? Personally, invest in commodities. That's the only hedge against inflation. Military stocks are going to do great. I have a friend who recently moved to the South to work for a military contractor. I have a feeling that all of us might be working for a military contractor very soon. I'm just looking through my list. Crypto, even with the extra restrictions, even I'm considering buying it at this point, even though I've been a skeptic, I'm just like, the more we print, the more we intervene, the more we burn cash on military and stimulus, the more you're like, well, where do I put money? And begrudgingly, maybe crypto makes sense. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying these are things I'm considering. I still think physical property and assets are going to be valuable. They have been inflated quite a bit, but I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think this war, it was kind of a reminder of the importance of the physical world. We tend to get into all of these digital battles and over nonsense. People are being reminded of our humanity, of the importance of family, valuing the things you have, hopefully valuing the country that you have. Because I suspect most people would not fight for the U.S. the way Ukrainians are fighting for Ukraine. A few years ago, I wrote, By any historical measure, we are gods. Nay, we are confused, indestructible, alien god babies. We possess powers we can barely fathom, much less master. And they're rewiring our brains, reshaping our bodies, molding our behaviors. I think what we're entering is something I call American puberty. Just like regular puberty, we are realizing that what our parents once told us were manipulations. They were lies because they wanted to keep us safe. They wanted us to behave a certain way. Our institutions have treated us in a very similar way, whether it's media, government, corporations. I think we're slowly coming around to the possibility that we need to scrutinize them more, that we need to ask tougher questions, that even the people we agree with are not entirely trustworthy all the time. But that doesn't mean distrust is the answer. That doesn't mean that getting rid of the institutions is the answer. It just means we have to think more critically. We have to ask harder questions, and especially of the people that aren't elected, that reside in the bowels of this machine. And the worst thing we could do is become cynical or nihilistic or be driven to madness because we believe every conspiracy or we think our neighbors are our enemies. I don't think they are. The sooner we stop seeing ourselves as enemies, the sooner we can start believing in reality again. I hope it's not a one-way street where it's just us judging our institutions, but also our institutions judging themselves and realizing that they have a long way to go to win our trust. I'm going to continue the Future of Relationships series, which I took a break from to do this, but that next episode is trust. And I'm going to dig deeper into what that means to re-earn our trust. And 
I'm optimistic. These are growing pains and we're going to be better coming out of it on the other side. And a lot of what I talked about today might be construed as an argument for a smaller life. How much of it do we want to spend flailing against these massive forces versus raising our kids and grandkids? As always, I leave that decision to you. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with others. Review it on iTunes. Really helps with visibility for the show. And sign up for the newsletter, stevefactor.com. Sign up on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture. Only five bucks a month. It's a great way to not only support the show, but get tons of member-only material. There's a new episode that's going to be posted right after this one later this week. That's it. I'm Steve Factor. See you next time on The McFuture. Future.